I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers. It goes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Okay, in case you're, you're wondering there. So we're going to look at uh, the book of Numbers for the next few weeks and uh, learn together uh, from the Israelite people. Uh, today, uh, the sermon will be, uh, be a bit abbreviated uh, because of the celebration of the Lord's table. But I'll just say the sermon is, in particular, this chapter, this narrative, is about one particular sin that's uh, very important to learn not to do. It's a grievous sin in the eyes of God. And uh, I'll just say at the beginning of the sermon, uh, if God convicts you or challenges you about this sin, the, the glorious thing is at the end of this sermon, as we celebrate the Lord's table, you have the solution for the covering of your sin, Jesus Christ's completed work. And so... While we'll reflect on this sin together and consider our own hearts and lives, let's just remember Christ covers it all. And so uh, we can take that sin to him. As I said before, uh, we're beginning a new series, a mini-series, before uh, our next major series. I've gone back and forth a little bit as a preacher praying about what would be the next book God would have us do. And uh, if you were here for the strategic plan, you know I plan on preaching on Hebrews and 2 Corinthians next and didn't know which one, and so I, I think God is leading us to Hebrews. Uh, so before that, though, um, I want to look at these five uh, texts and these five sermons in the middle of the book of Numbers. Uh, we'll look at Numbers 11 through 14 together and learn from the uh, unfaithful example of Israel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul the Apostle says that we need to learn from the failures of Israel, the Israelite people in the Old Testament. And uh, so uh, what we're going to see uh, throughout the next five weeks is what not to do. What not to do. Perhaps you've observed siblings uh, teaching their younger brother or sister something they shouldn't do, you know, something devious. They communicate this. You know, being a father of five, I have many stories that I could tell, but I'll refrain, okay? Now, I'll just, I'll just say this. It's even possible for little sweet twins to teach each other uh, bad things, bad things. Um, today, we're going to learn what not to do uh, from these Israelite people. Before we identify their failures, the first failure I want us to consider today I want to lay out a few, a little bit of background about the book of Numbers. You might not know much about this book. It's, of course, the fourth book in, in canonical order in the Old Testament. The book of Numbers is a great book. It tells the story of two different generations of the Israelite people. The book is framed by two censuses, uh, one in Numbers 1 and one in Numbers chapter 26. And uh, those Uh, chapters lay out the generations that are described afterwards. So in chapters 1 through 25 of this book, you could read about the first generation. I call them the Exodus generation, the people who came out of Egypt and into the wilderness. Now what you learn about this generation, the Exodus generation, is that they failed to have faith or belief that God could give them the promised land. Remember, some spies came uh, into the promised land, sought it out, and then came back and gave a report. But this generation does not believe that God can get it done. We're going to learn from the failures of this 
generation. The last 11 chapters, Numbers 26 through 36, tell of the second generation. I call them the conquering generation. It's led by people like Joshua and Caleb who believe in God's almighty power. God can do it. Doesn't matter how big the, you know, these, these giants are in the land, God can do it. Okay, so that's the book of Numbers. Two generations, Exodus generation and the conquering generation. Having said that, the first 10 chapters of the book of Numbers are pretty um, positive. They're pretty positive. Uh, now, one of the things you need to know about that is, you know, this is about the first generation. They're going to fail. Uh, the book of Numbers narrates 38 years in the wilderness wanderings of the Israelite people. They're in the wilderness for about 40 years. So this book covers a huge bit of time. However, the first 10 chapters in the book just cover one year. So up until the chapter we're going to look at today, it's only been about a year since they left Egypt. And things have been positive But that's why Numbers 11 is an important chapter. It's where the failures of the first generation begin. And Moses will describe their failures from Numbers 11 to Numbers 25 in three cycles of rebellion. Three cycles of rebellion. We're only going to look at the first cycle, Numbers 11 through 14, And today, we're going to look at the first grievous sin found in Numbers 11. Let's look for the first instance of this sin. It's the sin of complaining. Look in your Bible at verse 1. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taborah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. That name literally speaks of the fire of the Lord. And so uh, this chapter all starts out with some general complaining from the Israelite people about, the text says in my Bible, some misfortunes. The word misfortunes is an adjective and is translated in other English Bibles as some hardships or adversities that they were beginning to face. The word's a very simple word and could be translated, they were complaining about some evil or bad things that they felt that were happening to them. Now, it's interesting in the first three verses here, though, that we don't really know exactly what misfortunes, what evil they're uh, concerned about, uh, you know, it, it has been only, or it has been about one year since they left Egypt. I think sometimes we think of Egypt, we think of like dry and, and arid, but where they were, it was uh, pretty fertile. They're along the, the Nile River there and enjoying some of the benefits of being there. Uh, it could be that one year in a harsh desert wilderness was finally starting to get to these people and it's wearing on them. Um, but the text says they're complaining about some bad things. But then God responds to the complaints of the people um, uh, about their hardships. The text says uh, in verses 1 and 2 that his anger was kindled. That's not a good thing when you're talking about God. His anger is kindled. And that then it says that the Lord's fire burned among them and consumed some outlying portions of the camp. 
Now, if you're reading the original, the Hebrew, it's not at all clear exactly what the fire consumed. It may be that some of the complainers themselves were consumed, or property, you know, some tents, goods, livestock out on the perimeter of the camp. Regardless, the text says, God's fire burned. There are different ways you could take God's fire here. Some people think it's just a metaphor for the fact that God was mad. I think it's actual literal fire that burst forth from God in some way or another because the text says that this fire consumed either some of the property or some of the people. Okay, so an actual fire comes from God. We don't know how he did this. If he used natural means, something like lightning, or whether it's a fire that just comes forth from him supernaturally. It could be either one. We, we do know in other places in the Pentateuch that God can do this sort of thing. You remember the sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu? They're offering strange sacrifice, a strange fire in the tabernacle. This fire comes from the tabernacle and consumes them. They carry them out. Now here you've, you've got God judging again, perhaps God using something like lightning to supernaturally and sovereignly scorch the earth and the property near these complainers. And so this is what happens. They start complaining about bad things. Fire comes, scorches stuff. And so then the next thing you see Israel doing, the first thing you see them doing is complaining. Second thing, they're crying out. They go from complaining to pleading with Moses to just go and intercede for them. And so Moses does and God relents. That's the first narrative of their complaining here at Tabera, this place. It is brief and general, yet I think it's important for the chapter. Moses includes this story here, I think, to demonstrate that these people did not just complain occasionally. It's not just something they did like once or twice and then the judgment of God comes. What we're going to see starting here and in the the next part of Numbers 11 and in Numbers 12 is they're continually, persistently complaining. Anytime, it seemed, a new opportunity or event surfaced in their direction, these people were, uh, I'll use some modern words, they were realist. They were pessimist. Uh, One commentator said, in general, they had a humbug attitude. Humbug attitude. They were negative and critical. I want you to think about just for a moment an application about the way you respond to life events. Are you normally the realist, the pessimist, who brings everyone down because of your critical spirit and your complaining attitude? You don't want that sort of legacy. You don't want that sort of legacy. May this not be true of us. Even when we're going through difficulty or trial, may our first impulse be grace and contentment in the sovereign plan and will of our Father. Okay? So uh, their first complaining was about misfortunes. Now, their second complaint, and, and honestly, this is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. 
Okay, matter of fact, I think when I first came here, I preached a sermon. I couldn't find my notes, but I think I preached a sermon from the next few verses. I love this next story. They're complaining about God's provisions in uh, verses 4 through 35. And we can go pretty quickly through these verses um, here. I want to tell the rest of the story in just a simple two-step outline. Uh, first, we see the complaints of the people, again, in verses 4 through 15. It all starts with complaining from the mixed multitude in verse 4. So look down in your Bible at verse 4. It says, Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had made to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now the manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance like that of bedellium. The people went about and gathered it and ground it in handmills and beat it in mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. So you have an example of what the text describes here as the rabble. They're going to continue the complaining of Israel. The rabble in some translations, it's described as the riffraff. Other older translations described it as the mixed multitude. I think that's a good title for this group because the rabble is a description of a group of people who lived out on the perimeter of the camp, near the outside of the camp, and that this group included some non-Israelite people who accompanied them from Egypt. Okay, some mixed marriages and so be between Israel and other countries, but primarily non-Israelite people who came with them out of Egypt for some reason or another. Well, the verse says that the riffraff, the rabble, had a strong craving. Okay, they had a strong craving. They're, they felt a gluttonous craving for something, but I want you to notice what they crave for. Okay, the text says they're craving after cucumbers, melons, leeks, garlic, and onions. See that in your Bible? Strange thing to be lusting after. But maybe not if you're in a desert wilderness. Those sort of fruits and vegetables all required ample water supply and irrigation. It would require something like the Nile River Valley. But out in the wilderness, there's no chance to have that sort of food. Now, I think what you see in this text, though, is an example of them romanticizing the past a bit. Okay, imagine them in the door of every tent. I wish we had something other than manna. And I, I like how the Bible describes it here. All we have is this manna to look at. It's like they not only, after a year, maybe began to be discontent with what it tasted like, they even hated the look of it. And so they start craving for all these fruits and vegetables that they used to have uh, back in Egypt. They want other things. But they're not the only complainers. The next section, verses 10 through 15, describes a, another person who complains. Look in your Bible, verse 10. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord blazed hotly before it kindled. Now it's blazing hotly. And Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, why have you dealt ill with your servant? 
And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give birth to them that you would say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give to their fathers? Where am I to get me to give to all this people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you treat me like this, kill me at once. If I found favor in your sight, that I might not see my wretchedness. Here, the second complainer, I said I'll divide this, this story into two parts. You have the complaints of the people, and then you're going to have the response of God in a moment. But here you've got the second complainer, it's Moses. I think Moses is completely overwhelmed. He's been leading these people, and uh, so he's walking around the camp, and as he's walking around the camp, he hears people in the door of their tents, and the conversation is always similar. They're, they're complaining about their misfortunes. They're complaining about this miserable manna. So what does Moses do? Moses himself complains. This is completely out of, character, out of character for Moses because normally Moses has a firm resolve and he can trust God and he stands for God. But in this case, his resolve slips so far, he goes so deep into discouragement that he does something that we haven't even seen the people of Israel do to this point. In verse 11, Moses attributes evil Ill, the text says in ESV, evil can be translated to God. Now, I think this is an example of where expositional preaching pays off. Okay, you remember up in verse one, go up in verse one, and you remember what the people were complaining about. There was an adjective there. It was they were complaining about the evil or the bad things. What Moses does in this scenario is he takes that adjective and he turns it into a verb. He uses the same word, same family of words, and he says, God is the source of evil. God is the one behind the wickedness toward him. See, Moses wages a blasphemous accusation against God. He says, God, you have committed evil against me. Okay, so we're just following the story. It's pretty easy. The people complain and Moses blasphemes. So, what do you think God's going to do? That's where the rest of the story is just amazing. The rest of the story describes his response. Okay? He first responds by promising provision in verses 16 through 23. So look down in your Bible at verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people, and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come and talk with you there, and I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, and they, and they shall bear the burden of this people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. And say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who shall give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall not eat just one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but a whole month. 
until it comes out at your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have rejected the Lord who's among you and have wept before him saying, why did we come out of Egypt? But Moses said, the people of whom I am number 600,000 on foot. And you have said, I will give them eat that they may eat for a whole month. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and be enough for them? Or shall the fish of the sea be gathered together for them and be enough for them? And the Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord's hand shortened? Now you will see whether my word will come true or not. The first way that God responds is he promises provision. He promises it for Moses and the people of Israel, the two sets of complainers. Since Moses was overwhelmed, do you remember at the request of people and leading people, he said, yeah, did I give birth to all these people that you would want me to lead them? What God does is he gives him 70 empowered assistants. He installs 70 empowered assistants to, to uh, be a resource for him. And so Moses gathers these assistants together, and then God instructs him that they will be anointed with the same spirit that Moses has as they lead the people. I think it's best, for sake of time, I won't get into it, I think it's best to see that the spirit here is the Holy Spirit. And so it seems that these 70 men are empowered by the Holy Spirit in a temporary fashion to go about and prophesy and minister in the camp and help him. But we also learn the story that there are two men that get a more... Uh, a longer dose of the Spirit, the Spirit's with them longer. Their, their names are Medad and Eldad. Okay, and, and so we'll, we'll learn more about them uh, in just a moment as well. So 70 empowered assistants help Moses in this task. That's how God helps Moses. In verses 18 through 20, we, 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 we read about how God helps the people. He answers their complaints. He says he's going to provide in such a way for them that no one will be able to question his provision. God is going to give them meat in the form of quail or birds for an entire month. And I love that part of the text, don't you, that says uh, that they will get so much that it will come out at their nostrils. It's just a powerful, (laughs) vivid uh, image in the text here. That, That might mean that they'll eat so much they'll get sick and nauseous, and, you know, it will come out at their nostrils. Or it could also be a figure of speech. It just means they're going to get a whole lot of quail. Okay, again, it could be either. Uh, In English, uh, sometimes we use the phrase, you know, uh, farmers will say, you get so much corn, it's a bumper crop. They'll say, uh, we're up to our ears in it. Okay, well, they don't literally mean that. It's a figure of speech. So this coming out at the nostrils could be that, but I think it is a foreshadowing of what's going to happen. Now, as he goes through this, notice in verse 20 that God is not ignorant of the true heart condition of the Israelite people. And him giving them this quail, it is not that he is simply greasing the squeaky wheel. You know, that he is just rewarding complainers. Because in verse 20, uh, God uncovers their heart issue. 
they are not simply complaining about his provision. They're actually rejecting God when they're complaining about the manna. So in the middle of the verse, look, look down in your Bible, at the middle of verse 20. Uh, it says, uh, actually even look at the, the beginning, but a whole month until it comes out your nostrils, becomes loathsome to you, and here it is, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you. When they reject his manna, his provision, they are showing their dissatisfaction with God. God knows their true condition. They not only hated his provision, they actually were rejecting him. But then in verse 21, Moses asks this question. He questions God's ability to provide for a month. He says, shall all the flocks be? God, you want us to take all of our livestock and kill them? Is that what you want us to do? That, That would provide meat for a while, but that would devastate us. God, are you going to take all the sea, uh, all the fish out of the sea, the Great Sea, maybe the Mediterranean Sea or the Red Sea? You're going to take all the fish out of the sea and you're going to dump them out in the ground? And is that how you're going to provide meat for a week? Uh, God is very gracious with him here. And I I think Moses, uh, you know, there are reasons why he would wonder. I mean, how is God going to provide meat for 600,000 footmen? I think that's just describing the soldiers. You add the women and children to that. I think it's more like two million people. God, how are you going to get meat for two million people? And God's response is gracious, but confrontive. Verse 23. Moses, do you think that I have short hands? Uh, King James reads, are my arms waxed short? God is saying, do you think I have tiny little arms that can't do this? Uh, I know it's good not to base theology off of cartoons, uh, but I love the cartoon Meet the Robinsons. There's parts of it I like. And there's this villain character, if you remember this. The, and, and he's got this plan to get this little boy, and he gets this dinosaur from the past. This dinosaur's chasing him down. And this dinosaur, I don't know what kind of dinosaur it is. If you're a dinosaur purist, I'm sorry. But this dinosaur's got this massive head and these little arms. And so he chases him in the corner, chases his boy in the corner, and he's going to get him, and his head prevents him from getting him with his arms. Remember that part of the story? When God tells Moses, do you think I have tiny little arms that I can't do this? I think what God is doing is basically saying, Moses, why don't you step to the side? You just wait and see whether I can do this or not. And that leads to the second way that God responds. God finally responds by judging appropriately, verses 24 through 35. And we'll go uh, quickly through this section. First, I think he diminishes Moses' role as a leader in the people. Look at verse 24. So Moses went out and told the people the word to the Lord, and he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it in the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied. That's why I think it's the Holy Spirit. But they did not continue doing it. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad, the other Medad, and the Spirit rested on them. They had a longer dose of the Spirit. They were among those who registered, but they had not gone out to the tents, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp, and Joshua, I think Joshua understands what's happening. Moses' role as a leader of the people is being diminished because now there are other people who have the Spirit of God in leading, people like Eldad and Medad. So Joshua, verse 28, says, uh, 
uh, Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth said, my Lord, Moses, stop them. You need to prevent them from doing this. Verse 29, but Moses said, are you jealous for my sake? Would that the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit. That's another reason I think it's the Holy Spirit. Would put his spirit on them. See, Moses' desire is that all of the people would have the spirit of God. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. We don't have time to look at this in full detail, but I think that what God does here in providing for Moses 70 empowered assistants is also a way for him to judge Moses. Moses had complained about the people. Moses had asked questions about how God could provide. And so I think that from this point on, Moses' leadership and the children of Israel begins to diminish. They, They begin asking questions like in chapter 12, has God only spoken through Moses? Begin questioning his leadership. I think it's a form of judgment. But then in verses 31 through 35, God also justly repays the craving complainers. Look there in your Bible. It says, Then a wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea, and let them fall beside the camp, about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side around the camp, and about two cubits above the ground. And the people rose all that night and all that day and all the next day and gathered the quail. Those who gathered least gathered ten homers, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. While the meat was yet between their teeth before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled. We've seen that three times. It was kindled against these people. And the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore, the name of that place was called Kibroth Hatava, literally means graves of craving. Because there they buried the people who had the craving. From Kibroth Hatava, the people journeyed to Hazaroth, and they remained in Hazaroth. Here we come to the amazing miracle of God's provision. God brings enough birds here to feed the entire nation of Israel for a whole month. There's a difficult phrase in the middle of this story, the middle of this provision. It says that the birds were two cubits high. I think I've talked to you about this before, but two cubits high might be... uh, describing the fact that the the dead carcasses of these birds stacked up three feet high. That's two cubits. It was all said and done uh, throughout the whole land that there were three feet of dead birds. There are a few problems with that view. One would be that it would probably be billions of birds you're talking about, um, although God could do that. Another problem is uh, when you describe later on, when we see later on Moses describe how they were cured and how he spread them out and how the sun was to dry them and so on. It was, it's probably not that. It's, it's probably better to see these birds as coming in about three feet off of the ground. So I want you to imagine uh, this uh, scenario with me. I just love to tell the story. A, a powerful wind from God begins to blow, maybe accompanied by some storm. Quail are flying three feet above the ground. But how many quail are we talking about here? We're told that the least effective man is able to gather 60 bushels of birds. Remember earlier, Moses said there were 600,000 soldiers, footmen. Okay, let's just assume that they are effective men at gathering quail. I don't know if it always relates, soldiers, you know, collecting quail, but 600,000 men. So using that number, 600,000 times 60 bushels of birds, that means that they collect at least 36 
million bushels of birds. Well, if you're really smart, you ask this question. How many birds are in a bushel? Okay, and I I read all about that. I read all about that. And there are all kinds of different estimates. I'll just take the lowest one. The lowest one I found said that you could fit about five or six quail in a bushel. So do the math. This is a total of 180 million quail. Could you imagine looking to the horizon and seeing 180 million birds flying about three feet off of the ground coming at you? I love how one commentator describes this. I read it years ago. I've never lost it. He said, what you have here is you have a kamikaze incursion of quail. Men and women, what you really see here is that God said, wait and see. And he said, his hand is not tiny. And his answer does not disappoint. The story's not done here, though. The children of Israel gather the birds, they eat them hastily. Text says, while they're eating what's in their teeth, that God sends a great plague. I believe that these people were so craving for this meat, they don't even cure, they don't even cure the meat properly. They just dig in and they get, God sends a food poisoning on these people. I mean, could there be any doubt, men and women, that God hears and responds to his children when they complain about him and his provision? So I've gone a bit longer than I want today, but in this passage, we learn that God takes negative complaining very seriously. I've delighted in the power of God with you that he could do this, but might we also just learn the lesson from the Israelite people? I've learned that this grievous sin is so hard for people to see in themselves. Complaining, critical spirit. Yet I think it's so important. There's no doubt. God sees it as it is. We are discontent with his provision or his ways or even more significantly than with God himself. We open our mouths and we complain about life searching circumstances. May I suggest this to you this week, that you would ask five brothers or sisters in this church family if they hear you complain occasionally or frequently. Would you do that for me this week? I'm going to do it. Would you ask five or six brothers or sisters in this church, do you hear me complain occasionally or frequently? And when asked, Let's just be gracious and true with each other. It would be so much better for God to use a member of this church in a gracious way to show us that we're negative and critical and complaining than for God's anger to blaze against us when we speak of his provision, his ways, or himself. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the example of the Israelite people. And uh, as the church, as the church, I pray that we would learn from them. Lord, there's so many things to learn, but I pray that, Father, you would help us not to be critical and complaining. I pray that we might learn this lesson the easy way. 
through your judgment on someone else. And I pray that we'd be willing to ask other brothers or sisters to, to hold us accountable or to honestly evaluate if we're negative and critical often. We pray in Jesus' name.